On this episode of AvTalk, we are joined by the Air Currents' John Ostrauer to discuss the concerning departure of Emirates 231 from Dubai in late December. Plus, Allegiant orders 100 737 MAX. Really? Hello and welcome to episode 145 of AvTalk and a new year. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and Happy New Year, Ian. Or, or, or whoa, new year. whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, no, not, let's not get ahead I, of I'd ourselves. I'd like to strike new from the record and restate that as year. In the, in the transcript, no, we're no, just going to have to. I can't even do that right. I'd like to strike happy from the record and just say new year. Hopefully it will be a happy year, but we are not off to a good side for one of us. No. So far, everything oh. sucks. Everything is stupid. And we're in March 2020. I think it's like March 9,478, yeah. 2020. We're back. So to back up and to indulge us, I know that, that we have had some complaints about complaining, which is- You started ironic. it today. Yeah, no, it was, it's all my fault. So Jason, are, are you willing to share why you're so upset? I mean, like seemingly every other human being in the city of New York, I- caught COVID, I guess. I don't know what you would call it. The day before Christmas and spent a lovely 10 days in my apartment not doing anything. Really got to know the, the menu system on my TV a little better during that's that important. 10 days. That's important. Yeah, that's important. But everything here sucks right now. There you and go. The positivity rate, which is not as great as it sounds, is what, like 30-something on tests now or, or in the high 20s. It's not great. Yeah. But we'll push through it. Yeah. Um, mostly fine but you had a very similar experience yet different i did <laughs> similar yes same but different yeah no my father-in-law who is a a medical professional unfortunately got it got covid and then even more unfortunately gave it to my wife so i have been i i don't know we're 145 episodes in some people that listen know that i have three small children or three young children they're not small anymore. i like to say you have 45 you like to say what? Yeah, I like to say you have 45 children. It, it often gets quite loud in the background. It, it has felt like it this week. So so I've been solo parenting and, and starting the new year off that way while my wife is in isolation. Thankfully, they both had what will hopefully be the trajectory of this from now on where they it felt like a small cold and then they were just stuck in a room. So my wife has, has been, if, if anyone wants a, like a sweater, pair of socks, mittens or whatever, she's just been knitting up a storm. Meanwhile- Careful. The last time you offered apparel on this podcast- It, it was, did not uh, go well. Yeah, I like the I know, response. I <laughs> These won't be branded socks, I don't think. But anyway, so yeah, every, everyone's feeling better. L- luckily, I have not tested positive. My kids have not tested positive. Unfortunately, our twins are too young to be vaccinated, and therefore, they have also been in quarantine- so that's been rough. And on top of everything, a school got canceled because the teachers union and the school district can't agree on how to input circuit breakers to go remote or not remote or anything like that. So without getting into the local Chicago politics, because that's not what this podcast is about, it's been a week. But it's been rough. But thank you to everyone who has listened to the past year. I hope you enjoyed the clip show last week. Judging by the downloads, a lot of you did. 
so thanks for that. I'm glad to see that that was well received, at least in the number of downloads and, and amount of time it was listened to. So thank you for that. And then we start off the new year with what I think is a great show. We're going to have John Ostrauer back. Yeah, anytime he's on the podcast, it's a good show. Yeah, I mean, because it means something, something has happened. And something indeed has happened. And we'll talk with John about Emirates Flight 231 that occurred. You might not even have heard of that at this point. Yeah, this is one of those things that it kind of is, I think, going to be a bigger story as we learn more. And hopefully we do learn more. So we're going to talk to John in a little bit. But we start the year off with just weird news. Yeah, this one. Airlines has ordered the 737 MAX. I'm still trying to understand this one. Yeah, this one, I think I saw a Reuters article about this about 24 hours ago from right now. And it was an exclusive saying, oh, they're going to order 50. And it just seemingly came out of nowhere. And then the next morning, so this morning, we're recording on Wednesday, Wednesday, January 5th. All of a sudden, Boeing comes out and says, yeah, Allegiant has placed a firm order for 50 737 MAX to be split between the little ordered dash 7 and the 737-8-200. I still don't know how to pronounce that. I don't know what Boeing prefers, but with also options for 50 more. So Allegiant could possibly be taking up to 100 737 MAX aircraft while also still scouring the market for used A320s. Yeah. So there's a lot going on here. One of the biggest things going on here is how much did Allegiant pay for these aircraft? We don't know, obviously. We can surmise that it was next to nothing. It was not going to be a lot. Because Allegiant, up until now, or recently, they used to operate a variant, I forget which variant, but a variant of the MD-80s. But they transitioned to an all Airbus A320 family fleet and had for a while, and, and it was... I don't know if it was expected, assumed maybe, certainly dangerous in this case, that they were going to go the route of EasyJet. Their growth would be fueled by the A320 family. And Allegiant is no stranger to the secondhand market for A320s, though they have recently taken delivery of new A320s directly from Airbus. But it is not uncommon to see an A320 sitting in somewhere in China or Eastern Europe in Allegiant livery, having been, you know, returned or sold, returned to lesser and then and then less back or sold directly to Allegiant. So I think what was really surprising here was the size of the order, the timing of the order, and frankly, just what is going on with them taking the max. And it all comes down to, I think, that they found the plane that they're interested in at a very good price. And Boeing is basically going to support everything that the airline needs to get up and running. So what it sounds yeah. like is is they bought the – Boeing gave them a – They bought the gold package. I mean, we're not talking gold package. We're talking – I don't even – we're beyond like precious metals here. We're in like Einsteinium package. Training, support, processes. Basically, they get the airplane, they get all the training for the pilots for the airplane, and then they also get a bunch of Boeing, I believe it's Boeing Global Services is the Boeing organization that will help Allegiant become a better airline. They'll probably get some Boeing t-shirts too. One would hope. I mean, they, I, I will say that the the t-shirts that you can get from Boeing are, are quite nice. They they do a, a nice heavy yeah. heavy cotton. But it, it'll be really interesting to see 
where Allegiant, especially with the Max 7s, where Allegiant puts those and what they do with those aircraft, because they they are very interesting. And I guess we should back up and say that if Allegiant wanted to grow, growing with new Airbus aircraft would be next to impossible on the time schedule that they want to do it because Airbus doesn't, they just don't have the slots. Yeah. For deliveries. Yeah. A couple of things working against them to placing an Airbus order first, like you just mentioned, Ian, Airbus doesn't have the slack in their production schedule to deliver these anytime soon. Boeing's backlog is a lot easier to conjure up 5737 Maxes while the Airbus family backlog is quite saturated for the next few years. On the other hand, there were also rumors that Allegiant would want to look at the A220, which is interesting because it would still still split up Allegiant's common fleet that you'd have pilots that can fly the A220, pilots that can fly the A320. You're going to end up with the same situation here where pilots, some pilots can fly the 737, some pilots can fly the A320 family. But it's interesting that Allegiant ordered the 200-passenger variant of the 737, which the A220 just can't compete with. So this does seem like a pretty natural fit for Allegiant, though I'm pretty surprised that they went for the the Ryanair variant, I'm just going to call it. I mean, I'm not. That, I, that is I'm the, a little surprised That is by the that. least surprising part of this to me. None of this is surprising, which is why we're spending time talking about it. None of this is surprising as, as you dig and dig and dig. And it, it's just... I don't think it's surprising. I think it's just shocking to see it happen because the Max 7 takes the place of the A220. They were going to have to split the fleet anyway because there's not type commonality between the A220 and the A320. Fine. And then if you're going to have the Max, you might as well, if you're a Legion, you might as well pack as many people as you can into it. Yeah, that's true. But the Ryanair variant, I'm just going to keep calling that, is, <laughs> is a special one. It's above and beyond the 737 Max 8. It does operate its Airbus family pretty much at the limit of what's possible. Its A320s have 186 passengers, which is, I think that's pretty up there for the CO non-cabin flex version. I think that's about as much as you could do. So it's up there. But the order seeming came out of nowhere. Yeah, I think that's the surprising part. The timing of the order, I think, is is a surprising part. But if I'm a Legion, if I'm Boeing, I, I want to you know start the new year off with some good news, and and they did. There you go. Yeah. So the delivery, I believe, it starts in 2023 and runs through 2025. So it's a pretty quick completion schedule. Probably, if they exercise their options, they could probably take all 100 before they could take a single aircraft from Airbus. Wow. So a couple incidents before we get to our conversation with John that are worth noting. An Airlink jet stream hit a bird. And we don't have have confirmation about exactly what bird it is, but it's a big bird. A big bird. Not big bird, a big bird. Right. So <laughs> that would be awful. Yeah, that would, that awful. would just be awful. But some of the largest birds in the world happen to live in that particular flight path. So what happened was is the the aircraft hit a bird. The the prop shattered. One of the prop blades shattered and impacted the cabin and came into the cabin. Thankfully, no one was seriously injured, but we'll keep an eye on that one to see you know if they come out with a bit more information than that one. 
And another incident that occurred yesterday that I think is the first of its kind. I've never seen this before. A lot 787 that was flying from Seoul to, to Warsaw, nearing landing on approach, there was smoke in the cabin. Aircraft declared an emergency and, and landed quickly. And what had happened was the 787's windows, most people know that they're electrically dimmed. A current is passed through a film in the windows. And as the current is changed, it changes the opacity of the windows. And from the picture that I saw, it appears that something malfunctioned in that electrical current because the window turned melty brown. So a very interesting problem and one that I hope we hear more about. An easily rectified problem by lot maintenance crews because the aircraft is currently in the air on its way to Miami. So didn't spend a day on the ground. Yeah, weird one. And I'm assuming this is probably the first generation of the, I think it's electrochromatic windows on the 787. I know there have been several iterations to get them to dim more, basically. And the, these lot 788s are, are some of the earliest. This, and this was great. the first lot 788. Yeah. So this is as early as it gets for the 787s, really. So that window has been in service for quite a while. and yeah, first- Nine years, nine years. Nine years, and for it to be the first at least known failure, I'd say that's pretty decent. And there was no damage other than the the window got a little melty. And, and yeah, the, I the mean, interior you don't want the window to be any level of melty, but in this case, it it you know discolored a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Replaced it. Yeah. So no structural damage to the aircraft. There wasn't even any visible damage to the window frame, I guess, for lack of a better term, casing. I don't know what you would call it. The Where the sidewall indents to meet the window. I don't know what you would call that. But in any case, it was contained to the, the window itself. Yeah, I'd love to know what they actually did. Did they have to replace the actual glass or the full window module? Is that like a part they just have ready to go? Or is it something interior? Is there a coating on it or something that they just had to reapply at would love to know yeah. the details of how that got fixed. Yeah. So if yeah, if you happen to know how to fix a a short circuiting seven eight seven window, email us at podcast at fr two four dot com, please. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with John Ostar from the Air Current to talk about Emirates Flight two three one that had a very very unusual takeoff out of Dubai at the end of twenty twenty one. So stay with us. We will be right back after this. Welcome back. We are now joined by the Air Currents Editor-in-Chief, John Ostrauer, once again. John, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Always great to be with you. Welcome back, John. Another punch card stamp for you for a free sub. We're, we're sending a lot of sandwiches out to Seattle, aren't we? We are. There's a lot going on in Seattle. and Yeah. We got an interesting one this time. Where do we even start with this one, Ian? So John reached out to me the end of December and said, hey, did you hear anything about an Emirates flight? And I said, no, no, what, what's going on? And then John said, can I have some data? And I said, sure, here's the data. And we looked at it and our eyes both kind of got a little wide. And then John went and did what John does, which is report the hell out of something and came up with a story that 
you know, as I was reading the published story, it was one of those things where I'm like, he's answering some questions, but I have a million more. So John, can you just walk us through kind of what we know about Emirates Flight 231 from Dubai to Washington on the 20th of December? And then we'll slowly tiptoe our way until we don't feel comfortable conjecturing with information that we don't have. So this is going to be a, a continuum of conversation. Yeah, there are so many layers to this onion, it's not even funny. And all of them stink. I think the, the, the fascinating thing about this, so I feel like there's some context for how this all came about. So on December 27th, there was a series of WhatsApp messages circulating in the pilot community. And I heard about it from a pilot that does not fly for Emirates, but that was just sharing what he saw. And effectively, what it was claiming was that an Emirates flight leaving Dubai International Airport for Washington Dulles on the 20th of December took off barely and effectively skimmed the neighborhood of Deira, which is just to the northwest of Dubai International Airport after taking off on 30 right at an altitude of about 175 feet at well over 250 knots, which is the speed limit below 10,000 feet. Effectively, at that altitude, you are within less than one wingspan of a 777 to the ground. And so this was an amazingly close call. The narrative that was created by the person, we again, don't know who the original person was, who wrote the, these initial WhatsApp messages, claimed that the aircraft autopilot had been set to zero feet which told the flight director, which is these two little magenta crossbars directly in front of the pilot that overlays that blue over brown attitude indicator to give guidance for hand flying the airplane. And if it's set to zero, it'll guide you back to the ground. And effectively, the messages claimed that the pilot slavishly followed it almost to the catastrophic end of this flight to Washington, D.C. I saw that and I thought there's more to the story. And obviously, I, Ian, I reached out to you and, and, and the team at Flight Radar for more information because that's all we had at that point. And there was an additional notification circulating with the WhatsApp messages around a warning from Emirates Flight Operations to talking about how to set the autopilot properly. And we'll get into that in a minute. But as we went and looked at this more closely, it was clear that something nearly catastrophic happened. I needed to set aside the narrative that was attached to it because clearly that's not reliable. There were claims made within the thread, which by the way, were spreading like wildfire and actually spawned two very popular blog posts from bloggers who do not typically cover aviation safety. They cover the travel experience and various perks of miles and credit cards and so on and so forth. And no, not begrudging their, their chosen beat. What I had a problem with was that they copied and pasted it and rephrased it as sources said, when they don't know where these came from either. And I got the messages too. So went ahead and began to explore this question. That flight, as it took off, clearly there was some type of intervention. We don't know what it is. There's so much that we don't know here, but it continued its climb up to, to altitude and flew along its merry way to Washington, D.C. for 14 and a half hours, landed. And then came back to Dubai. And again, without these WhatsApp messages, we would never know that this, this had happened. But what I was able to find out fairly quickly from the airline was that, yes, this in fact did happen. There was an incident of some kind, and it had prompted an investigation. By the way, we don't know if it's an Emirates internal investigation or 
an investigation by the safety regulator of the UAE. So there are so many questions that have been created by the knowledge of this incident that are unanswered, but it hits on so many different, very interesting things that are going on in, in aerospace right now and aviation and, and sort of the mind of, of crews. So that's the 15 cent tour here of kind of what actually took place. So we get to the point where the aircraft has left the gate, taxi to the runway, and the aircraft departs and lifts off. So John asked if we had additional data. And so I guess I should explain what additional data means. The data, and we've talked about this a few times, but it may have been quite a few episodes since we talked about it. So I'll kind of do a a quick recap. The data that we display on the website is captured at an interval of about five seconds and is taken as a sum of the whole from receivers that see that particular aircraft at that particular time. And they're just kind of randomly chosen based on you know which one gets to the server and then it's displayed and they're stretched out in about five second increments. Because if we did more than that, the website would just fall over under all of the data because ADSB broadcasts at twice per second. So we're getting basically two messages per second from the aircraft. There's also a lot of data that gets transmitted from the aircraft based on where the aircraft is located. So if the ground, the air traffic controls ground receivers that are interrogating the transponder saying, hey, send me your information because I see that you're a plane and I need to know more about you so that I can tell you where to go and what to do. That information is dependent upon the the information that comes out of the aircraft beyond the standard ADS-B data that we display for all flights is dependent upon the ground station saying, hey, I want more information. So that can include various speeds, the GPS altitude, indicated airspeed, the Mach number. It can include certain autopilot settings, including the figure that's dialed in on the control panel that is the altitude selected by the pilots. And so we save this data, not broadcast it out right away because it's just so much and it comes in at such a high frequency, but it's all saved for things like this. And so when John requested it, we started looking at it and the figures are just eye-popping. The aircraft departed the runway traveling 220 knots over the ground at an indicated airspeed, the reported indicated airspeed from the aircraft at the time that we first received an altitude message, which is 25 feet because altitude in ADSB is reported in 25 foot increments. So 25 feet is the, the first reported altitude, indicated airspeed of 211 knots. And what would be the typical airspeed at that point? Quite a bit lower in the 100s, correct? It's in the 100s. And keep in mind, you're dealing with a fully loaded 777 about to fly 14 hours. So the initial rotation speeds can be anywhere between 175 to you know as high as 190 or the, between V1, V-rotate, V2 for actually getting off the ground. So there, yeah, it is a very, very heavy aircraft. And actually, again, that's obviously a speed that's dependent on how many passengers are on board, how much payload there is, winds, temperature, runway condition, all of that. And that's all calculated on board the airplane. But the 777, when it's fully loaded, it's moving pretty quick when it actually gets off the ground for a flight like that. And then it, it continued to not so much get off the ground, but just pick up speed. I mean, we're talking about well over 250 knots, which is basically the speed limit below 10,000 feet. 
depending on how you measure it, or not depending on how you measure it, but regardless of how you measure it. So you've got ground speed, which is what's shown on all the flights that you can you know, look at. And then there's the indicated airspeed, true airspeed, Mach number, whatever you want to use. It was going very, very fast, very close to the ground. Yeah. And it's great that John thought to look at the granular data, first that he knew it existed, and second, it was able to be pulled out. Because it, when you look at the public facing website, there's not all that much alarming data. The first data point is a zero foot altitude at 216 knots. The very next one puts them over the neighborhood at 175 feet going 262 knots. But then the very next data point, they're already up at 2,475 feet. So this happened very quickly and was corrected very quickly. And if you're not looking at the granular data, you're going to miss the story entirely. So I think it's important to answer, explain kind of my thinking about why the granular data was important. The central conceit of, of these claims that were being made was that the autopilot panel was left in a certain state for takeoff, and which would have misprogrammed the flight director and the guidance it was giving to the pilot. I knew that given the fact that ADSB data is so rich in a granular fashion, we would actually know definitively what the autopilot panel was set at. For takeoff. It's amazing that we have this, this level of data. We're, look, we're not air accident, incident investigators here. We're a member of the media, a member of the general public who can get this data and look at it. But it does begin to answer in a factual way, something you can really point to that say the central claims of this WhatsApp post that again is being regurgitated uncritically is not correct. And you can begin to fill in some of the blanks here. So what did we find? We found that not only was the panel set, it was actually set correctly. We know that when the takeoff roll began, the value in the autopilot, what they call them windows, it's a little digital readout along the dashboard or glare shield of the, what's called the mode control panel. It's a, it's a very aviation way to say the autopilot <laughs> control, right? You, you never call something what it is. It's got to be, you know, a very specific. If you call it the mode control panel, it gives it an acronym. And that's oh, it the does, important exactly. thing. And it's got a, a technical gravitas to it as well, you know. And so, so the, the, the little altitude window was set actually correctly at four thousand. And so, over the course of of the next several hours, I had to answer: this doesn't make sense. Either someone is lying about what happened to, you know, essentially spread an expletive post. I'll leave you leave you to guess what the expletive is around the internet to create an impression that something that has happened has occurred here that was demonstrably unsafe. But it's not that simple. It, I knew it wasn't going to be that simple. So where this led me was a much more complex component of the story, which which came actually was issued by Emirates Flight Operations, I mentioned this earlier, on December 27th. And it discussed as a reminder to crews to not set the altitude window at zero feet when leaving the airplane on the flight that preceded Emirates 231, as just a general reminder. Because there's a, I'll call it a quirk, and by the way, quirk is not my word. Quirk is the word used by a veteran Emirates 777 pilot who described the, by the way, this quirk is well documented also in, in Boeing autopilot documentation. It's very clear that if the mode control panel, the autopilot altitude window is set to zero and the barometric altitude, i.e. The, the pressure-based sensed altitude of the airplane is within 20 feet of zero, 
which by the way, it can be over time because the pressure changes and can adjust the barometric reading before it's set properly. If you turn on the flight director, which by the way, is the normal flow for a Boeing 777 being prepared for flight, the autopilot system will, and the flight director will go into a mode that will give you, and will be locked into capturing that zero altitude window guidance. And so if you left it that way, even if you turned it to 4,000, the flight director guidance is going to stay pointing you toward the ground. So what does that tell us? Number one, the biggest, most obvious piece here is why didn't they pull up? What happened there? And that's the biggest outstanding question that we have because every pilot I spoke to, and pilots love to be Monday morning quarterbacks and this stuff. They love it. But also they have a really good point to make, which is fly the airplane. And if you're looking outside and you realize you're not climbing as fast as you think, pull back. You know, it's sort of the natural muscle memory of taking off in an airplane. But within that, again, confirmation that, that there were a confluence of factors here. The only way that a crew would have caught this locked altitude, even after setting the panel correctly, which we know from the Flight Radar 24 data, is to have turned off the flight director and then turned it back on again to reset it or to engage a different mode on the autopilot. There is a, again, without getting way, way, way into the weeds here, you have the what's called the primary flight display. And the primary flight display has, it tells you things like the altitude, heading, airspeed, the attitude indicator, you know, the blue over brown, and the flight director on top of that. And above that is what's called the flight mode enunciator. It's a nice way to say, here's what mode the aircraft is in. Actually, it's funny, from an automotive perspective, we know we, we've seen this increasingly in cars in terms of you know, whether it's cruise control or other enunciations of different modes around traction control or slip or whatever. But an airplane has one too. And so on the flight mode enunciator, on a normal 777 takeoff, the flight mode enunciator would read toga, toga. And toga, toga is takeoff, go around. And below that, you'd have two little lines saying LNAV and VNAV, lateral navigation and vertical navigation. They'd be in white because they would be armed, but not active. If you had the mode control panel set incorrectly and it would lock to zero, even after changing it, it would say toga, alt, as in altitude capture. If they miss that, if, and I say if because we do, we do not know, I mean, it's important to say what you don't know in a case like this. The flight director would give you guidance right back to the ground. So again, there are so many unanswered questions that come along with this. But again, like all of these incidents have always been, they're far more nuanced than just saying there is an assumption about what happened. Here's X. And again, that spreads like wildfire. Well, look at, let's look at the information. You know, again, this is a known function of the autopilot. This is how it behaves. And pilots are aware of this and they are trained for it and it's documented. So it's, I'm not inferring that this is a fault of the aircraft at all. I'm just saying that when these things come out there and they spread the way they spread, we don't have a full picture. And it, it's made even worse when people go on what is effectively a, you know, a post that reads very maliciously that spreads like wildfire, and then it's claimed to be sources on various websites. And that is not helpful. And a lot of the early rhetoric that we all saw was basically that 
assuming that there was an over-reliance on automation in the cockpit. And really, we don't have any supporting evidence to prove that's true. We know what happened. We don't know why it happened. So nobody can say for certain that this was due to an over-reliance on automation. I mean, maybe, but we simply don't know that, do we? We don't. We don't. And certainly, if the central conceit, which again is an auto, which has, was claimed to be an over reliance on automation, was the foundational sort of outcome here in terms of flying the flight director back to the ground at the speed, that's very, very, very serious. And look, you need to kind of unpack this as the reason we, we have all around the world have been following that line of thinking is because of these WhatsApp messages. And I think that's really incredibly important because. Again, absent an official investigation, absent any non-unattributed circulating rumors, we do not know at all what caused this. And I think it's really important to, again, say what you know, say what you don't know, and, you know, forgive, pardon my French here, stop spreading shit on the internet that is unsubstantiated. Yeah. And unfortunately, one of our best resources that we could use to figure out what happened, which would be the cockpit voice recorder, that is almost certainly a lost cause at this point, since that only probably records about maybe two hours worth of data and was, since they did not return to Dubai, they went straight to Dulles as planned. That was almost certainly over-recorded or erased well before they even reached anywhere useful. So that data was gone before they ever even had a chance to access it, which is disappointing and makes me feel like we'll never truly know what happened without the audio recording. Well, what's really interesting is that that they decided to keep the flight going, that they proceeded on. And when you go over a certain speed, when you overspeed the flaps, which are designed for a certain airspeed for deployment, you can actually cause structural damage. And I did see in, in some of the initial reporting of this that there was damage to the aircraft, but it seems like that may not actually be the case because it doesn't look like this aircraft had any extended downtime. So we don't even know if that's... The it case. was down for a few days. So the flight back to Dubai from Washington departed late, but not excessively so. The aircraft then sat for three days. But it sat for three days approaching Christmas. So maybe that was just planned to happen anyway. We don't know for sure. Without an official statement from Emirates, we don't know that to be the case. Right. We don't know. But what we can say is that this aircraft is operated daily for months. So I would love to hear an explanation why they felt they needed to pull it out of service for three days after an incident like this. That is a definite open question. And then one big supporting piece to go along with that is I, I was speaking with Emirates President Tim Clark, so Tim Clark, in Dubai back in November. And what he said is that the 777 fleet has never stopped. It has gone flat out for months and months and months and months for the entire pandemic because of its cargo capabilities. And the 380 fleet was largely sidelined by the pandemic. So the 777 fleet has always been active. And so, yeah, you know, those pilots have been going hard for a long time, for, for almost two years. I think you have to look at fatigue in a situation like this. You have to, you know, there are so many different questions that don't have answers that come along with this. John, I think you briefly mentioned this when we first started talking about this, but the flight departed at three in the morning in Dubai. Yes. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that I think is worth mentioning, because we often talk about, you know, how things unfold in an aviation incident, but all of the things that we are talking about, everything that we've talked about for nearly the past half hour happened in less than 90 seconds. 
all of this, everything from the takeoff roll to when the aircraft began to climb, we'll call it normally or, or as it should, less than 90 seconds. So, I mean, it's one of those things where you look at it and whatever was happening stopped happening and they adjusted and you saw an aircraft then fly normally for 14 and a half hours across the world. I mean, which is kind of bonkers to me that after this, they were like, okay, yeah, we're fine now. I mean, there's precedent for that. Remember the Qatar 777 at Miami ingested a few pieces of runway light and went all the way to Doha. So we've seen worse. I don't know if that's a good precedent. No, it's but, not a good but precedent. Your point but your point is taken. Precedent. Yeah, no, your point is taken. But John, before we depart, do we know who or what is investigating this, if there is some sort of official investigation, or if this is just an Emirates looking into what happened and saying, do we need to write a letter? Do we need to fire people? Do we need to retrain people? What's happening on the how we will hopefully eventually learn more front? You know, I think we don't know. I think that's that's another problem here because Emirates has, has said it's under investigation, therefore we can't say anything. No one has said outside of Emirates that it's being investigated. The GCAA, which is the aviation regulator, has not responded to repeated emails from myself and has not responded, I believe, to any other any other media regarding the, the situation, which is not particularly heartening relative to, to transparency, especially if the airline is itself investigating. What I am aware of is that there have been other incidents like this, not at Emirates. And so there clearly is a component here where this type of situation has happened before relative to a misset autopilot and flight directors and so on and so forth. Again, usually caught, almost always caught by crews. And we'll get, get into that more in the, in the days to come in terms of our reporting. But crucially, I think this is where aviation reporting is so important because if this has happened before, there was no worldwide telex system to communicate to other crews that, hey, just as a reminder, be wary of this. And by the way, in the other situation, the airline involved did take action to change their procedures to make sure that that would be caught. But I think it's really important that in an age of where we're also focused on public health and transparency and not hiding information that can make people smarter and save lives, aviation reporting in this particular way is just as critical. So I hope there are many lessons. I want to understand what actually happened here. But I think one of the immediate lessons that we have is what you see in, with your own two eyes in front of you circulated from an anonymous WhatsApp thread circulating might not be what actually happened. And taking the time to figure out what's real and what's not is probably the single biggest responsibility we all have as in consumers of information in the 21st century. So this is going to be a case study on a lot of different levels, both media and aviation. So I, my ultimate sincerest hope is that we have a full accounting of what happened. But if we do not, I'm heartened that we can at least contribute to a proper understanding of at least the circumstances that may have unfolded. So ultimately, other crews don't experience the same thing. And we'll put a link to John's article in the show notes. John's reporting on aviation safety is both top-notch and he makes it available without a subscription to the air current because, John, I know that you're a big proponent of making sure that people are 
are informed and making good choices as far as aviation safety is concerned. And so we thank you for that. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. John Ostrauer is the editor-in-chief of The Air Current. He joins us once again on this fine podcast to make us better informed aviation fans and followers. So thank you, John, for that. And we will talk to you again soon. Gentlemen, thank you as always. Thank you, John. Welcome back. We have officially had our first bleep of the podcast. All right. And we're going to bleep it, or, or I guess we already did bleep it, and we won't have to put the explicit tag on this episode. We're a family-friendly podcast. Mm-hmm. Debatable, but... <laughs> I guess it all depends on your family. A few quick things before we say goodbye and, and put the first new episode of the year in the books. Jason, tell me about Air New Zealand's, I guess, not in-flight meal offerings. It's not flight meals, I guess. This just kind of makes sense. Like we're seeing here in New York and pretty much everywhere else in the world, COVID-19 is spreading like some sort of terrible, terrible wildfire. And Air New Zealand has made an interesting – actually, it shouldn't even be interesting. It's just a logical choice to not distribute food or snacks or anything on domestic flights. But they will distribute a snack on your way off the flight. And that's a really interesting, again, logical way to get people to keep their masks on for the full flight. Because I I know we've all been on flights where somebody gets a glass of water or a beer or a tiny Biscoff cookie and uses that as an excuse to not keep their mask on for 82% of the flight. But in this case, they won't even have that opportunity because you will get a parting gift of whatever it is you are going to eat on board the aircraft. You can go eat it on your own time outside of the aircraft. And that is only applying to Air New Zealand flights, domestic flights, and none of which physically can be all that long. And I think that's just a good idea. Yeah, I think it's an interesting approach. And they're saying, hey, you know, we're still going to take care of you. We'll just, you know, give you a parting gift and and maybe make it special with a little bow or something. Yeah. I found it interesting when I tweeted about this that some people replied and saying, well, I'm I'm never flying Air New Zealand. (laughs) I saw saw that. Wasn't he from England? He was from England. And I, I don't think he had many domestic New Zealand flights planned in the future, but all the power to you, buddy. If you want to be that kind of stupid idiot. By all means, hey. you don't have to fly Air well, New Zealand well, just, Hey, I don't want to have to bleep you. Hey, I censored myself there. There you go. Okay, before we go, this is news that I actually missed, but congratulations to Irkut and uh, certification of the MC-21. Jason pulled this one and I said, wait, what? Yeah, this one happened, when was it? It was January 3rd, so just a couple of days ago, at least this article's from January 3rd. I thought it happened at the very tail end of 2021. But that's a big deal. This aircraft has the potential to really shake things up in a way that the super jet failed miserably to do. This is interesting. This is going to be the first step towards this aircraft being a real competitor, at least in Russia and Eastern Europe and maybe Africa, I don't know, to compete with the duopoly of Airbus and Boeing. I'm excited to see where this goes, and I'm really disappointed that I haven't been able to see this aircraft in person yet. But I think, did you see this in person? No, Jeremy saw it in person at the Dubai Air Show. Yeah, Jeremy saw it and Gabe saw it in person when they were at the Dubai Air Show. And you can go, we'll put a link in the show notes, and you can go take a tour of it 
when they did a video and, and did a nice tour of it. The one that was at the Dubai Air Show wasn't fully outfitted, but the cabin that they did have in it looked pretty nice. So you can check that out. Yeah, I'm excited to see where that battle goes, and hopefully it goes a little farther than the Superjet did. But I have a feeling it will. Yeah, I, I think that this aircraft is much much more well-suited as far as size, range, and capabilities for things that airlines around the world are looking for. And certainly Russia wants to make this an export and, and wants to make it a success. So I, I think the pricing will be advantageous as best they can for airlines. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see which airlines pick this up and where it's operating in the next couple of years. Yeah. I think we do know that Rosaya Airlines will be the first airline to operate this hopefully towards the end of this year. But as all aircraft programs and things with COVID go these days, who knows? Maybe that happens next year, but we should see the first aircraft enter service with Rosaya. Excellent. Well, this has been, I think, a good way to start off the first episode of the new year, if not all the news having been good. But it was good to have John on and talk through some of the things that, that we're still waiting to learn about Emirates 231, get some orders in the books to really start the year and a surprise one at that. And we'll go on from there. We've got some things coming up, hopefully, assuming that the COVID situation stabilizes or changes for the better. We've got some travel coming up that we're hoping to share with you through the spring. And then we've got some good interviews and things like that with people who we think are going to be really good to hear from coming up as well. So I will say that this has been episode 145 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Justin Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.